Will you pray with me? Father, please uh, open our minds and hearts to your word uh, and your word to our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I understand that uh, as a church you've been working through this letter of Paul to the Galatians and we're getting towards the end. Um, And in the section we're looking at today, which is on page 799, is it? No, 8, sorry, I was back in Matthew. Uh, 948 in the church Bibles, Um, Paul raises the question of how we respond to moral failure amongst each other, amongst Christians. And it's a sad truth, but a truth, that moral failure happens. Uh, Earlier in chapter 5, Paul has talked about the works of the flesh, the the behaviour that comes out of our sinful nature. He says it's pretty obvious. Let me read the list and see whether, as I read it, you can actually uh, call to mind behaviour of other Christians around you. Uh, he says the works, uh, sorry, I've got to find the right thing, works of the obvious, um, fornication, which is sexual immorality, impurity, licentiousness, I won't define it, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. If those things do happen, we do them, others do them. Young and old do them, clergy and lady do them. They happen in our homes, in our workplaces, they happen in our churches. Some are picked up by the media, most of them just fester underground. How are we to respond to that as people who know Jesus and his grace? The responses I've seen around me uh, normally come under three headings. The first and usual one, or often, is we simply ignore it. We pretend it hasn't happened. We know that we're not supposed to judge, and we think that raising it, doing anything about it, is judging. So out of, well, sometimes concern, often cowardice, we do nothing. The second, which I think is more common, is we cover up. And the royal commissions over the last few years and other things just keep bringing to light how much we have covered up the sin and moral failure, including amongst Christians. We normally do it to try and save the reputation of our organisation. It's sort of our instinct, I think, especially if, like me, you're part of the organisation, you don't want people to know bad things about it, so we protect our reputation by covering it up. But in the end, it comes out, doesn't it? And when it comes out... It's not only the the, the failure, but the cover-up that brings and destroys our reputation. The third is we condemn it. If we don't cover it up, we bring it out and we condemn the action. We we say, yes, there are some rotten apples among us. And it's it's not us, of course, it's them. And there's only a few of them. And we shift the blame to them. Now, all three responses are pretty human. And unfortunately, Christians are human, like others around us. We see similar responses in political parties. They have their fights and factions and, and failures. We see it in sporting clubs. We see it in strata companies. We see it amongst neighbours. How should we respond? How does God want us to respond? Those of us who know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who know the gospel that Christ came and died for us, Because this book of Galatians, this letter Paul sent, is a passionate persuasion 
that God relates to fallen, sinful, fleshly, weak people like you and me with grace. Grace is that stunning, unbelievable generosity of God who treats people like they don't deserve to be treated. As he says in chapter 3, it's by grace that Jesus took the curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Law says Tim should be condemned. But Christ says, I died for Tim. I died in his place. I took his condemnation. He forgives people who fail morally. And the word that Paul uses again and again in Galatians is justification. Because Christ died in my place and your place, he treats me like I've never sinned. Christ puts me in the right with God, totally accepted and welcomed, totally forgiven. But God's grace goes far beyond that. In chapter 4, he talks about the way that God's spirit enters us to help us experience the reality that we're now his children. We've been adopted into his family. Enemies and rebels are seated at table with the God we've rebelled against as family, as children. Just as much as Christ is his son, we are welcomed into his family with the same status, adopted to be his children. That is grace. And the whole letter contrasts grace with law. Law is right, it comes from God, it's good, but law gets all junked up when we try and use it as a lever for our justification, when we try and keep the law in order to be right with God. It just doesn't work, not because the law's wrong, but because we fail. But it's also a failure when we try and use it as a sort of means, a tool to stem the tide of sin. So in chapter 4, Paul talks about before Christ came, Law was like this, this childminder. You know what kids are like, don't you? Kids can't help being naughty. You were like that, weren't you? Some of you still are. We're growing out of it. But if you've looked after kids, you, you know it's like that. They're, they're not deliberately always naughty. Sometimes they are, but they're just naughty. And they need a childminder. They need a, a guardian to stop them. And that's what the law was. But now Christ has come. Paul says it's sort of like we're adults now. We, we don't need that law to try and stem sin because we have God's grace and we have God's spirit who indwells us, who, who produces this fruit, which is wonderfully good, love and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness that, that I want. I, I'm not naturally like that, but the spirit transforms us. And so Paul says to apply the law to moral failure, doesn't work. All it does is condemn people. It just gives sanctions. If you do this, this is what goes, this is what's supposed to happen to you. But it's the wrong tool to try and help people who failed. It doesn't produce righteousness. But grace does. And so in this little section, we're looking at Paul instructing us on how to apply grace, this wonderful gospel of Christ's death for us and the giving of the Spirit, to personal failure, to people we know of, including maybe ourselves, who have failed morally. And he lays it out in Galatians chapter 6. My friends, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore them, store such a one in a spirit of gentleness. There's the main thing that he lays out. Anyone 
caught in transgression, detected in transgression. Now, that gives the wrong impression about what Paul's saying. Because that gives the impression that we're there with our telescopes, watching each other, trying to detect a transgression in another. But, but the, the sense of Paul's language is, it's someone not caught by you or me, but caught by sin. Sin has that deceptive character to it. It catches us. It traps us. And I presume you've experienced that, haven't you? You didn't get up in the morning saying, today I'm going to lie. But you did. It's a funny sort of trap because we don't want to, but we do it. It has a power, but it's a very strange power. And so it's, it's true, and it's your experience, it's my experience, that all of us get caught in sin. It happens in some sense every day. It happens more significantly on particular days when sin grabs us and takes us on its course. And we go with it willingly, but it's not what we want to do. Now, Paul here is not addressing sin which is persistent and stubborn and deliberate. Jesus addresses that in Matthew 18. He says that if somebody persists in that, they won't repent. They just insist, I'm going to keep disobeying God. That's a much more serious thing. This is someone caught in sin, but they don't want to continue in it. And Paul says, sin is real. It's still sin. Grace doesn't turn us to to be morally blind so we don't see sin. Grace is needed because God hates sin and evil. And so if somebody transgresses, if somebody's caught in sin, we're to take some sort of action. But Paul's cautious about the sort of action. He says those who have the Spirit are to restore them. When he says those who have the Spirit, he's just said that all Christians have the Spirit. But I think probably what he means is not so much every Christian. We've all got the Spirit, so all let's go and do it. But those who are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, because they're to restore them in gentleness, and gentleness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit produces, this gentleness, this humility. And so those who, in whom the Spirit is working, who's transforming them, they're the people who need to take some action. And the action is about restoring them, restoring them gently. The word he uses is often used for repairing things. Remember when... You might know the story of James and and John. Andrew and Peter were down by the the, the lake's edge when Jesus called them, repairing their nets, sort of putting them back in order, getting them ready for for the work of catching fish. And so this is about restoring people from what has gone wrong. And when somebody sins, when somebody is caught in sin, two things are affected, their relationship with God and their relationship with God with other Christians and then people around them. You tell a lie and God hates it. You tell a lie and the people around you end up hating it too. And that transfers to you. And so the, the shame and the guilt come on you because of what you've done. Now, Paul is short on details here. The sort of sin, it's actually quite broad. How to restore He does give you some instructions, but not not details about uh, how to do it. But it's clear from the letter what he means by that is restore them to God. 
if you go and speak to them about the way in which their sin, your aim is to restore them to God. That is for them to find forgiveness with God, to experience his grace again, and to restore them to each other. Because it's true, isn't it? When, when we know that somebody has sinned, when they've done something that is public and notorious, it's actually very, it's difficult for them even to walk into this room, isn't it? They feel like every eye is on them. They need to be restored to us as a community. He doesn't say how to do it. Maybe what it means is you put your arm around their shoulders as you walk in so they know that they're welcome. That's extending the grace of God to them. And those who do it are to do it gently or humbly, not harshly and proudly. And it's difficult to to raise an issue of somebody else's moral failure. It, It can't help but feel like some sort of judgment on them. That is how they obviously will feel because you've raised it. And so doing it gently, doing it humbly is critical. It can be done in the spirit of gentleness. It must be done in the spirit of gentleness. And he gives the motive in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. See, when somebody's sinned, Paul imagines that they're carrying a burden, this burden of guilt and shame, this burden of not not knowing how people will respond to them or how God will respond. Bear their burdens, carry them with them. So together you share that shame and you bring restoration. Jesus takes it away, but we need to stand beside them, carrying that burden with them. And so he says, fulfill the law of Christ. It's a bit ambiguous what he means by that. Probably he's referring to Jesus' command to love each other. Love one another as I have loved you. This command of loving your neighbour that fulfills all the law. That is the motive for doing this is love for the person who's failed. It's not condemning them. It's not feeling more self-righteous in front of them. But out of love, wanting to restore them. Not ignoring what they've done. That's not good for them. Not covering it up. That's not good for anybody. Not condemning them, but restoring them. And this would include even if their sin is against you. Because when somebody sins in a way that that is against you, that damages you, that wounds you, that scars you, it's very difficult to restore them because you're hurt. It only comes if we can forgive them. And that wonderful parable that Jesus tells Helps to put that in in a context, doesn't it? This story of a king who has a slave who owes him 10,000 talents of gold. That's more gold than in in Fort Knox. It's an unbelievable amount that he owes the king. And he begs for mercy. Please give me time to to pay it back. As if he's ever going to pay it back. he's He's just playing for time, isn't he? And what does the king do? He forgives him. He just wipes the whole debt which means he carries it himself. He loses all that because he doesn't get it paid back. And then that slave, having been forgiven, that enormous, unbelievable amount goes out, finds somebody owes him $20,000 and says, pay up or I'll throw you in prison. Now, what he's doing is legally okay. He's within his rights, isn't he, to say, you owe me money, pay me back. It's morally actually justifiable. 
Now, what if everybody just you know, said, you've got to cancel all my debts? Our whole financial system would fall apart. But in the context of a slave who's been forgiven that much by the king, it's abhorrent. It's wrong. It's evil to demand that he pays back such a little amount. Do you see the correspondence? You see it, don't you? We've been forgiven so much. God's grace has been lavished on us so broadly and richly and deeply. How can we not forgive those who've wronged us? He's not saying it's easy. He's saying what will help us do it is the realisation that I'm totally dependent on that enormous, lavish grace of God in Jesus. That's the only thing that will enable me to restore someone who has sinned against me. And as Paul writes this, he's acutely aware of the dangers surrounding this this ministry of restoring people to those who know about the sin, to those who are going to do something about it. And so he says in verse 1, take care that you yourselves are not tempted. See what he's saying? Yeah, okay, to restore someone, they've sinned. Take care that I'm not tempted even by the same sin that they've fallen into because I'm just as weak as them. I can't look down on them and say, well, you've fallen into sin, I haven't. No, I'll be tempted. I am tempted. But for the grace of God, go I. I don't restore them from a position of superiority, but as a fellow sinner, as a fellow recipient of God's generosity. And then there's the danger in verse 3. For if those who are nothing, uh, sorry, yeah. Uh, For if those who are nothing think they are something, they deceive themselves or must test their own work, then that work rather than their neighbour's work will become a cause for pride. When somebody else sins, the almost immediate natural reaction of all of us is to say, well, I didn't. (laughs) They did, I didn't. We become arrogant. We think we're better than them because they got caught in sin and I haven't. And it's a It's a dreadful thing when that happens to us and it opens the door for our own conceit. And we do that normally by comparison, don't we? It's almost a natural thing to do. And and when you operate under law, under performance, you will compare yourself to others. You look at the person on your right, you look at the person on your left and say, well, I'm probably better than at least one of them, aren't I? And you probably are. 33% chance you'll be better than one or the other beside you. And then you start to look down on the person who's failed because they bolster my sort of sense of righteousness. Have you ever had that terrible joy come into your life because you've heard of somebody else failing? They've done something terrible. And instead instead of grief, you feel this sense of, oh, good, elation. I'm not like them. It's a curse. And Paul says that can't be true amongst those who know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Law will always push us to that comparison. Which ones have I kept? Which ones have you failed in? But grace means I'm a self-confessed failure. I'm equally culpable and equally forgiven as the person I'm seeking to restore. Or sometimes we blame other people for our failures. And so he says in verse 5, all must carry their own loads. 
I'm not to, to, to blame shift and say, no, when I fail, it's their fault. No, carry my own burden. Now, you might have noticed that, as this was read that Paul seems to contradict himself. He says in verse 2, carry each other's burdens. Then in verse 5, each must carry their own burden, their own load. And I, I hope it had the effect on you that it's meant to have. When Paul or other people do this sort of paradoxical thing, it's meant to drive us to think deeper. Yes, on the surface, it looks like a contradiction. Carry each other's load, carry your own load. What's he actually saying for each? I want to suggest that probably what he's saying is the first one, carry each other's load. He's trying to help those who are tempted to be indifferent, to be apathetic towards the failures of others. That's not my problem. They've got to carry their own load. But in verse 5, it's a different temptation. It's a temptation to shift the blame. When I do something wrong, well, it's really their fault in the end. No, I've got to carry responsibility for my own failures. And Paul holds those two things together. So what are we to do? Well, firstly, Paul writes as if he expects there will be some moral failure, even amongst the people of God, those who've experienced his grace, those who have the spirit within them. But he expects that that's something that can normally be restored. And so he encourages us to take action. If someone's caught in a sin then there's an invitation to that person to find the grace of God. If somebody's caught in a sin, there's an implication for the rest of us to seek to restore them, to welcome them. And Paul doesn't create elaborate structures here on how to do that. Because of our current climate, we've had to create all sorts of elaborate structures of of church safe, of uh, codes of conduct, steps, phone, uh, phone numbers, if anything happens. And some of those things are right. There are some things that need to go to the police. But Paul starts at the more personal, at the more relational, at the more community level. He wants us in love to bear each other's burdens. When one among us sins, he's caught up in moral failure. We start by seeking to love each other, to restore each other. And that's personal, isn't it? If you have sinned, if you've failed, can I say a particular word to you? God's grace is extended to you. Come to him, confident of forgiveness. And come to us, confident, I hope and pray, that we will welcome you. But on the other side, if we know of situations where a Christian brother or sister, maybe a family member, a a congregation member, has been caught in sin, then please do something. You've got to consider whether you're the right person to do it. You may not be. But I hope and pray your instinctive response is, I want to restore them. I want them to experience the grace of Jesus in all its riches and and depth in the midst of your feelings of shame and guilt. If it's not me, somebody else needs to go and have a chat to them and seek to restore them. That's gospel-shaped response to failure. Sin is corrosive. It's the work of the flesh. It's the work of the devil. Christ came to rescue us from sin and all its effects. He died to take away the power of sin. He gives us his spirit 
to empower us to live differently. And so it's the grace of God in Jesus that is needed by us when we fail and it's needed when we offer restoration to others.